Good morning and welcome again to Phil at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is a volunteer-powered community platform, which means we are funded by you, the listener. Today, we are joined by Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time to reach into the past and look again at Diva from 1981. And Jeff Godsell takes a fond glance at eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. But first, Jeff kicks things off with an appraisal of Henri-Georges Clouseau and Diabolique in this special episode of Film 11, in which after a wearying year and holiday season, we decided to take a look at some of our favorite films from the past. Henri-Georges Clouseau is one of the most fascinating of all filmmakers. His name remains relatively unknown, however, among the average movie lover, despite making two of the finest films of the French cinema, The Wages of Fear and Diabolique. His stature would no doubt be greater if he had been more prolific. The reasons for that have to do with obstacles that would be crushing for a lesser artist. A prolonged illness in his late 20s, criticism by both the left and the right in France for his film Les Corbeaux, made during the Nazi occupation, his post-war sentencing by the French government, unfairly, for being an alleged collaborationist, his lifetime ban from filmmaking in 1945 reduced to two years thanks to the letters of support from filmmakers and artists like Jean Cocteau, René Clair, Marcel Carnet, and one of his first supporters and friends, Jean-Paul Sartre. A keen observer of human nature, Clouseau's films often feature unflinching portraits of duplicity and deception. His sometimes cynical worldview can make Clouseau seem like the anti-Renoir with his abundant love of humanity. And perhaps that explains why he never found favor with the French New Wave critics. Again, an example of short-sighted judgmentalism. Clouseau had a penetrating gaze and a mastery of his craft, nowhere better evidenced than in the 1955 classic, Diabolique. A rundown boarding school in the outskirts of Paris is run by the cruel and mean-spirited Michel de la Salle. The school is actually owned by his long-suffering teacher wife, Christina, played by Clouseau's own wife, Vera. Michelle mocks her for her heart condition and for the concerns she has for the students. He's also having an affair with Nicole, another teacher, who he also abuses. He's nasty to the professors and the help alike, all of whom seem to just accept and endure, perhaps out of expediency or just to keep their jobs. Nicole, though, played by Simone Signoret, has had enough. She has a plan to murder Michelle. At first reluctant, Christina eventually agrees to assist. Clouseau wastes no time in setting up this simmering stew. There isn't a wasted image or a sidelong glance or an overheard comment that doesn't serve to draw us into this created universe. Christina and Nicole start to implement their plan, driving to Christina's hometown of New York, 
ostensibly for the holidays. Once there, Christine calls Michelle back at the Institute to say that she wants a divorce, knowing all the while that he will be furious and take the first train out to New York. Once he arrives, Christina puts sedatives in his whiskey, and soon he's out. Nicole re-enters, and the two of them do the dirty deed, submerging him in a full tub of water. They wrap his body in a curtain and place it in a large wicker basket that they brought just for that purpose. And when they return to the school in the dead of night, they roll the body into the dirty water of the neglected swimming pool. So when the body eventually floats to the top, then everyone will assume that it was an accident. Except that the body never does surface. The women's nerves become frazzled. Nicole manages to lose her keys in the pool so that it has to be drained. When the pool becomes empty, there is no body to be found. Adding to the mystery and to the bizarre, a delivery arrives at the school from the cleaners. A newly pressed suit. The very suit worn by Michelle when he was murdered and dumped into the pool. Enter a retired policeman, now turned detective, named Alfred Frisché, delightfully played by the diminutive little cigar-chomping Charles Vanell, seen in many of Clouseau's films, including The Wages of Fear. Much to Nicole's chagrin and Christina's initial reluctance, Frisché insists on offering his services in finding the missing Michelle. Things only get spookier. A student claims that he had an encounter with the missing principal, who ordered him to rake leaves as punishment for breaking a window. Now, this completely unnerves Christina, whose heart condition becomes worse. She's told by her doctors to maintain strict bed rest. When a school photograph is taken of all the faculty and students outside the front of the building, the finished photo seems to show the spectral image of Michelle gazing out of one of the upstairs windows. Nicole says she's had enough, and she decides to leave the school. She urges Christina to join her, but she's too ill. That night, in the dead of night, Christina hears strange noises and even stranger sights as she wanders the darkened hallways in her dressing gown. She takes refuge in the bathroom, and this is where Diabolique becomes a horror film. Clutching her hand onto her failing heart, she sees the suited Michelle fully submerged in the water of the bathtub. And in the film's most famous image, Michelle slowly rises from the tub, his eyes glazed. Christina slumps to the floor and falls over dead. Sliding the contact lenses out of his eyes, Michelle walks over to Christina to make sure she is indeed dead. He calls for the waiting Nicole, who is waiting just outside the door. Now they are free to inherit Christina's fortune. They recall how difficult it's been to pull off this charade, especially for Michelle playing dead. But there's a fourth person nearby who has heard everything. Emerging from the darkness is Inspector Fiche, who informs them that they will get 15 to 20 years, depending on the judge. 
The French title for the film is Les Diaboliques, or The Devils, and it's not until this ending that we can know to just whom the title refers. Diabolique was based on a novel by the French detective fiction team of Boileau and Narsajac. It has been said that Clouseau bought the rights to the book just hours before another eager buyer attempted it, Alfred Hitchcock. But Hitchcock would, two years later, have better luck with the purchase of another of the duo's works, D'Entre les Mortes, which was to become Vertigo. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. Now, Matthew joins us to discuss Diva. I guess the best uh, quick rundown of the plot of this movie comes from the Internet Movie Database on their page for Diva, 1981, directed by Jean-Jacques Benex. Two tapes, two Parisian mob killers, one corrupt policeman, an opera fan, a teenage thief, and the coolest philosopher ever filmed all twist their way through an intricate and stylish French-language thriller. This rather straightforward description hides the fact that this is a movie of great visual style and uh, of philosophical ideas about art and art's importance in life. And this, all this disguised as a uh, tense crime thriller. At the time, this was greeted as a sort of new style of uh, filmmaking coming out of France. There were other films at the same time. There was one called Subway and Nikita, which was remade as the American film La Femme Nikita. And then there was uh, Leon, The Professional, uh, with Natalie Portman. And that was remade as, or retitled in the States as The Professional. And also uh, by uh, Benex is a movie which I really like called uh, Betty Blue. But first he came out with this movie Diva. And at the time it was criticized for being too stylish and too reliant on the visual. And it was sort of derogatorily titled uh, this Cinema de Luc, that it was all about style over content. But in looking at it today, you can see that that criticism is kind of short-sighted, that the substance of the film is conveyed by its style, as well as the narrative is presented by use of spectacle. You certainly saw this technique uh, a couple years later with producer Michael Mann and his uh, television series, Miami Vice, really heavily stylized, but also very strong narrative. The movie opens at this performance and we're following this young uh, delivery uh, a postman named Jules, and he arrives on his bike and he goes in. We first think he's going to deliver a package, but no, he's attending this recital of uh, the aria from this great opera, La Wally. Uh, performed by Wilhelmina Fernandez here in the role of opera singer Cynthia Hawkins.
Now, Jules, we find out, is like an opera fanatic, and he has snuck in uh, a high-end tape recorder in his delivery bag. And even though we don't see the microphone, it's established that he's making a very clean uh, recording of the singing. And we find out that uh, Cynthia Hawkins doesn't like to be recorded. Now, at the same time as Jules is making his clandestine recording, we're made aware of these two uh, men sitting behind her. Uh, these are Taiwanese record executives of some sort, and they are desperately seeking to sign Cynthia Hawkins to a contract. And they become aware that Jules is making this secret recording. And so uh, part of the plot is in motion here where Jules makes this secret tape just for himself. He's not making it to sell, but these businessmen are aware of it and they desperately want to acquire this tape either to put out on their own record label or to use as leverage to break down uh, Hawkins's resistance to uh, signing a recording contract. Now, at the end of the performance, Jules comes backstage and she signs these uh, programs. She's signing autographs. And for a second, they kind of have a connection because the art is like becomes their connection. She, he's a fanatic for the music, as is she for her performance. And you know, we learn by the end of the film now she's, she doesn't hear her own uh, recordings because she feels it might affect her performance. And, and that's what she lives for. And here Jules lives for the performance. He's, he's stolen this recording just to listen to it as himself. Now, before they can kind of talk, uh, other things happen, the people that she works for, with or work for her or other hangers-on and stuff show up. And so uh, Jules kind of, is kind of pushed to the back. Well, before he leaves, he steals the opera gown. And then that night, he's at home in his loft apartment in this garage with his high-tech recording equipment and his posters and stuff. And here he's holding the dress as he's listening to the recording. And it is at this point that Benex, he, he starts to tell his story by using a mixture, a high culture, the opera, but with uh, more popular cultures, records and uh, posters and pop art and stuff is mixed together in this story. Now, as I said, it's a crime thriller, which accommodates a lot of coincidence in the narrative. So the next day, as... Uh, headlines are reading who stole the diva's dress uh, jules is back on his job and he's with the other messengers at one of the train stations in paris now unbeknown to him another story starts up uh, a policewoman and an informant are waiting for another informant to get off the train and she has a uh, evidence that will uh, convict this uh, gangland uh, big boss who runs a uh, uh, prostitution and drugs and he's this mysterious mysterious figure that only known as the West African. And this woman has information about who, who is the real criminal. But before she can get to the policeman, she's met by these, these two assassins who are very dangerous looking. And, and she's trying to get away from them. And she appears to stumble against one of the messenger bikes, the same bike that Jules drives. And in a quick close-up, we see that she's hidden this tape in Jules's saddlebag. 
and then right after that she's killed right in front of the police officer and so now we've moved into a more traditional sort of crime story where we've got the police and we have a dead body and we're trying information and what's the crime going on and so it starts to set that up now what we got at this point is unbeknownst to jewels and there's lots of things that happen that the the characters are unaware of, but we are. And we've got these two storylines that are established. Jules has made this recording of the opera star for himself, but he, the, the businessmen from Taiwan are aware of the existence of the tape, and now they want this tape. And so at one point, Jules has given it, lended it to somebody else, and is not in his apartment. And the two men come in and they trash the apartment. Soon after they leave, the police arrive because they put together that the woman had hidden the tape in the messenger's bag. And so they've tracked down who the messenger was and they arrive at Jules's apartment to find it trashed. And so they're going to wait for Jules to show up. Now, meanwhile, Jules has find out that people are after him and, and other things sort of come into his story. So he's got two sets of villains who are after him. He's got the, the businessmen from Taiwan who will do anything to get this woman signed to a contract, literally anything. And they've got the gangsters who want to cover up the evidence and keep secret who is the real boss of the crime ring. And so at this point, Jules makes the acquaintance of young Ada, a Vietnamese girl he observes stealing some records from the record shop. And so he's kind of intrigued by that. And I mean, we've just seen him steal a, the, the recording and steal this dress, so they kind of have a little thing together. He's attracted to her, and they're both interested in music. And he comes back to her, brings her back to his apartment, and he plays the tape, and she's immediately enthralled with it. And she wants to take it to her partner, uh, Garadish. Now, the story is, these are actually the heroes of the story, if you read the original book, called Diva. Um, the author of these uh, series of books is uh, given as Delacorda, but that's really a nom de plume for uh, philosopher uh, and spiritualist Daniel Odier, who, who's written other books about spiritualism, but here under this nom de plume, he can incorporate his ideas into a genre of fiction and utilize them in a, in a story that people can find more accessible. And so uh, Garadish, once he hears the tape, he immediately recognizes its value and he wants to meet the young man. And then he realizes that you know, the young man just likes the music in the same way that Ida likes the music and he likes the music. And he becomes aware that there are these people who are after Jules. Uh, one, they want to get this tape of the music. But it turns out that Garadish becomes aware that there's this other tape and these other people who are even more vicious than the Taiwanese record producers. And so Garadish and Ada sort of come to Jules's aid. And so in spite of all this uh, fancy editing and stylistic visuals, at the heart is this basic uh, crime thriller, which makes this movie even more accessible. Now, like I said, this was a sort of part of a kind of new direction with film, with Benex and also uh, Luc Brisson. And they're making more movies, more stylistic, but also using the style to layer in the messages of the film. So we have this talk about art between uh, Jules and uh, Cynthia Hawkins, the singer. And we 
juxtapose that to this other crime story that uh, Garadish and uh, Elba are trying to unravel at the same time, which makes this a very interesting and engaging film. Diva from 1981, it's out on uh, Blu-ray with a whole bunch of uh, extras included on it, which uh, you know explains the, the, different, the different artistic movements and the different artistic uh, points of the film, as well as the philosophies of, you know, we've got the artist who is afraid to enter in the professional world of recording. She wants to stay pure to, his art, to her art. But she later is when she talks with Jules, their, their exchange of uh, their love for music helps her to move on to become more of a professional and we also have the uh, identity theme of who's the real villain and what's really going on and what's on the surface and what's underneath and of course how does Garadish resolve the conflicts how does he get the to manipulate the villains into uh, using their own greed against them so I'm talking about Diva from 1981 directed by Jean-Jacques Benex a disc well worth looking at You are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio KBOO Portland. Please consider becoming a member today. Now Jeff rejoins us to discuss eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Back in the early 2000s, the trio terrible of the cinema, Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, and Charlie Kaufman, seem to be single-handedly rescuing the movies from the doldrums of the 90s with their completely original material and new ways of telling a story. They were funny, quirky, and definitely indie, but they still got major stars to come on board. Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Human Nature, and maybe the best of the bunch, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from 2004. The concept for Eternal Sunshine comes from the idea of the possibility of successfully erasing the memories of someone from your mind. Something that could come in handy if you're trying to recover from a love affair that has gone sour and you just can't move on. Director Michel Gondry's friend Pierre Bismuth originally conceived the idea and had even planned an art project where he would send out cards to people saying that someone they knew had erased them from their memory. The art project never happened, but that idea did make it into the film. Gondry approached writer Charlie Kaufman with the idea, and together they came up with a pitch. It was just a treatment of a few pages long, but it was enough to get sold as far back as 1998. Kaufman wasn't even intending to write the screenplay, busy as he was on other projects, but he was eventually cajoled into doing it, and five years later, shooting begins with Gondry directing, which all seems so amazing since the final product is such a remarkable collaboration. In Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Joel Barish is an average, introverted, unfashionable, but very likable guy 
who has an unlikely relationship with Clementine Krasinski, an extremely extroverted, sometimes wacky and spontaneous free spirit. Also unlikely was the casting against type of both Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet as Joel and Clementine. But from the moment of their first meeting on a train, all the decisions in this movie just seem to be the right ones. Now, it should be mentioned that this first meeting on the train is not really their first meeting at all, as we later learn. They had each undergone the procedure to erase the other from their minds. But we don't know that yet. If this all seems unduly complicated, it really isn't. Because even though eternal sunshine does move back and forth in time, it's easier to follow than, say, a Christopher Nolan film. We're given the information we need, and we follow most of Joel and Clementine's relationship as the memory of it is being erased from Joel's mind. Director Gondry and writer Kaufman play down, even satirize the sci-fi element of the story by making the procedure decidedly low-tech. The Lucana Company, which provides the service, might as well be a carpet-cleaning company with its modest offices in an unassuming building. And it's run by a single doctor scientist played with calm normality by Tom Wilkerson, who is assisted by a screwy and perhaps less than fully competent staff of three, played by Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, and Kristen Dunst, all relatively early in their careers. This approach of dropping the bizarre into the middle of the otherwise unexceptional everyday world is a hallmark of Charlie Kaufman's writing. And it works surprisingly well, just as it did in Being John Malkovich. This is not happening in some dystopian version of the future. It's happening right now, and it could happen to you. And as Joel feels his memories of Clementine being erased, he can half remember them, maybe for the first time in a long time. And we, in turn, see these shared events as well. This is not a partnership made in heaven, but it is one born from real life. And it's one that Joel starts to realize he doesn't really want to end. Even though he can't stop the procedure, he tries to hide Clementine in memories of events that she never appeared in, like in Joel's childhood. Now, all of this gives Gondry and company a chance to ingeniously show Joel's changing, dreamlike state, and with few special effects. Gondry had become a master of visuals from his many commercials and music videos for Bjork, among others. But having said all of that, it is still the attention to the characters of Joel and Clementine that has made Eternal Sunshine the modern classic that it is. Somehow this unlikely fractured romance says so much about our own relationships and of serendipity and random moments of beauty. Oscars and BAFTAs and WGA awards went to the screenplay and both Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey were widely praised for their work. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is currently streaming on Peacock Premium, but the DVD is the way to see this thing as a terrific commentary with both Gondry and Kaufman 
even if it is a little difficult keeping up with Gondry's rather thick French accent. This is Jeff Gossel for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Jeff. And thank you for listening to KBOO Radio, KBOO Portland. Film 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching the screens.